All right, I don't, I, I don't know if I'm getting lazy, if it's summertime or what it is, but I, I, I didn't really write much of an intro here uh, for this message. Um, sorry about that. Uh, such a familiar psalm in front of us though, isn't it? So, so really f- uh, familiar. Um, even people who don't believe in the Bible, even people who aren't or wouldn't call themselves Christians, uh, don't believe as we would, somehow they know Psalm 23, and even if they don't believe, generally speaking, people just love this psalm. They just love it so much. It's so familiar. And so I feel instead of doing an intro, I would just read the psalm, and then I'll pray, and then we'll start looking at it together. How does that sound? How's that for an intro? Um, but you and I, here's the, here's the main point, the nail that we're going to uh, drive in this message. You and I can be confident in the face of every dark valley that we are compelled to walk through uh, because of what we read in this psalm, the assurances that we get in what the psalmist wrote. So it's Psalm 23. Let me read it for us. And then again, I'll pray and we'll start working through these verses. Uh, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen? Is that awesome or why? Just awesome. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these words. Thank you for inspiring the psalmist to write something so beautiful, something that speaks to our deepest needs. We would ask that you would kindly meet with us again and that you would, through this psalm, assure us of your promises, teach us again your truths, and challenge those areas of our lives where we are still rebellious and resisting you. Father, these things we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen? Amen. All right. Are you out there today? All right. That's good. You know, it's middle of July. Just checking. Make sure you're all on top of your game. Ready for this? I'm confident. I'm, I'm confident in the face of every dark valley that I'm compelled to travel because, first, I lack nothing. God provides for me. I lack nothing. The Lord, verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd. Now this is um, the Lord God. This is Yahweh. This is his personal name. He's coming to the table to provide everything that we need. This image is God as the shepherd and, and us as the sheep. And it's a very common one throughout the Bible, both Old and New Testament. 
And you think about it for a little bit, this is a, an agrarian or farming type illustration that is being used to help us understand our relationship with God and how he provides for us. We're not a very agrarian culture anymore. It's a very urban slash suburban culture that we live in. There might be, I think, three, maybe four farming families in our church. We just don't immediately have the knowledge base to understand all the dynamics of what's the relationship between a shepherd and, and sheep. That was very effective in the ancient Near East at the time of the writing of this psalm. They understood this. It was very close to them, but a little harder for us in the context in which we live. But I have to say this, uh, it's not at all, the illustration is not at all beyond our reach. And we don't need any real special knowledge to understand what's going on here between shepherd and sheep because the psalm itself tells us what a shepherd does in providing, and, and as a result, what the sheep actually need. And all we really need to know is, the Lord is the shepherd, and we're the sheep receiving his great provision in our lives. That's all we need to know. The psalm is going to tell us everything we need to know. The image of the shepherd and sheep carries through verse 4, and then verses 5 and 6 speak more. Verse 5 especially speaks more of a host. And so we're going to look at this and understand that God is our leader, God is our provider, God is the feeder, God is the protector, so that you see all of that in him and he's so good at it, so that, verse 1 continues, I shall not want, I shall not be in want, or as one uh, more contemporary translation says, I have all that I need. I have all that I need. He's so good at providing as the shepherd. And the I shall not want, the, the verb tense that the psalmist used here is actually a future tense. And, and so it's, it's really, um, I am going to have everything I ever need. It, it's, it's looking to the future. Now, it's easy to be grateful. We sang about gratitude, and Pastor Dwayne prayed us uh, through a prayer of gratitude, and it's easy to be grateful for the things that we have had in the past. Look at all the ways God provided for me in the past, and it's tangible and it's real because we can document it, and we experienced it, and we could even thank God for all the things that we have right now. Look at all the stuff I have. Look at all of the ways God is blessing me right now. So it's not a hard thing to thank him for the past stuff. It's not a hard thing to thank him for the current stuff and to see him as being the provider, but sometimes we can doubt that that's going to continue to happen. Depending on our circumstances, it's harder for us to look into the future and to continue to trust him to say, you're always going to provide for me. But that's exactly what the psalmist is saying. I will have everything I need always. Now that's a confident assurance, a confident assertion that no matter what I face, no matter what I face in the days to come, God's going to be there for me, and he's going to give me everything I need, and I can declare with absolute confidence, I lack nothing. I will always have everything I need, and that's not because, that's not because I'm clever. It's not because I'm hardworking. 
It's not because I was born into it. It's not because I'm lucky. It's not because fate has shone down on me. It's not because everything just happened to come together for me. These are all phrases we use. It's because the Lord is my shepherd and he provides for me in every way. What is his provision? Verses 2 and 3 help us with that. Uh, Two provisions, one outcome. Verse 2, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. And so green pastures and still waters are the provision that God is making for me. And the result or the outcome is that these two things restore my soul. He restores my soul. So sheep have this need not only to be fed, but also to be rested, to be cleansed, and on an ongoing basis even to be healed from wounds that they might suffer, from things that happen to them. And so we start to unpack what does it mean to be in green pastures? What does it mean to be beside still waters? You can imagine that over the time that I've been a believer and a pastor, I've studied this a lot and I've heard a few messages on this. I've read a few books. I've seen a few videos. I've tracked down some things about Psalm 23 to understand all of this better because I'm not a shepherd and I I don't live in an agrarian uh, society. So I want to understand this better. What exactly... What exactly is the psalmist talking about? I might even understand that the farming practices today are different than they were then, or the farming practices in Canada, uh, the way we take care of sheep here would be different than the way it happens in the ancient Near East. I might understand all of that. And pastors and commentators and authors go to great lengths to try and understand what exactly is he talking about by green pastures? What exactly are the still waters? And all of us kind of have in our mind what that looks like right now. Picture a green pasture. Picture still waters. And you have a mental image of what that is. The psalmist certainly had something in mind, something very specific in mind. And some Bible teachers will go to great lengths to try to convince you what the psalmist was thinking with both of those things. And I thought about doing that and putting pictures up on the screen and trying to explain to you exactly what was happening as the psalmist was telling you about all these things. And I thought, it's not actually that valuable. Because could you not agree with me that whatever the psalmist had in mind with regard to a green pasture and whatever we have in mind with regard to a green pasture, this is true. See if you don't agree with me or not. When we're talking about all of this, a green pasture at the end of the day is a place of tranquility and rest and safety. Whatever the picture is, it's tranquility, it's rest, and it's safety. Whatever still waters are, they are refreshing, they are accessible, and they are peaceful. Whatever picture you have in your mind. So I feel like we don't need to dig into that uh, much more than that, despite any differences between when the psalmist was writing and what we're thinking here. The point is the same. Rest and nourishment and refreshment are found wherever the shepherd leads you, and you should want to be there. You should want to be in the green pastures, and you should want to be at the still waters. 
that God provides because that's the place where he restores your soul. That's the place of renewal. In fact, this idea of restoration is returning something to its original state. It's, It's rebuilding. It's repairing. It's reviving something that's fading or dying. That's what it means to be restored. And God is the provider. He's offering all of this to us so that we can say, I lack nothing. What exactly is the provision? We have these metaphors, but what exactly is God providing? For sure, at some level, it's physical. In the original illustration, it's very much physical. And so, yes, it's a good thing, and if we're to stay in a place of restoration, if we're going to be healthy people, there's an aspect to this that's physical. It's important to eat right. It's important to sleep well, to find rest. I know that um, as I was working through uh, the study of this, I was thinking to a particularly dark time in my own life that I went through when God had to assure me of some things, when I needed the restoration of my own soul. And as uh, people around me would speak into my life, I remember one of the questions that was very common during that time was, are you eating well and are you sleeping at night? That's an important question. That we would have that. But wouldn't you not agree with me that the psalm goes much deeper than making sure we're physically okay? In fact, this is about the restoration. Look at the verse. It's about the restoration of the soul. This whole series is about Psalm 130 verse 1 says, Out of the depths I cry to you. This is about our souls being restored in the Lord. That's where I need restoration the most. Not to the neglect of the physical, but certainly not neglecting the most important part. That I would be right with God. That I would have the gifts that he wants for me. That I would be restored in my soul. So this feeding primarily is spiritual. And God, as we're going to see, is going to set the table for that. But every one of us faces a decision whether or not we're going to step up to the table and eat. Whether we're going to lie down in the green pastures. Whether we're going to uh, drink from the still waters. And how does God provide for us? Well, first of all, he provides us with his son, Jesus Christ. Who sacrificed his life on the cross that we could be reconciled to our God. A necessary starting point in this is that you have to come to him in relationship, confessing your sins, and and have Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of your life. That's the first decision you need to make. There's no restoration of the soul without it. But second of all, and in such a primary way, and the way we actually learn about Jesus Christ is by feeding on the Word of God. This is such a full meal right here that we would take the Word of God and devour it and find restoration for our souls. I thought about Jesus in Matthew 4, 4, and he's, he's being tempted by the evil one. And, and in the temptation... Jesus responds to him by saying, he quotes from the Old Testament, Jesus says to him, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word, every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. 
In other words, it can't just be physical feeding. I have to be a feasting on the Word of God, every word that comes from the mouth of God. And I wonder where our priorities are on this. If I were to do a very scientific study of your Facebook and Instagram posts, I would say that you're far more interested in the food you eat. Uncomfortable laughter ripples through the crowd because they know Todd's going to go somewhere uncomfortable right now. I just wish we would stop posting pictures of our meals and just eat them. <laughs> just eat them. It's just food, people. It's just food. Stop posting pictures of food if you get nothing else here this morning. <laughs> posting all these pictures about food, but to what extent would we say that we're meditating on and thinking about and devouring the Word of God. That's how God restores our soul. He's, he's making it available, but you have to avail yourself of it and feed yourself. It's good that you're here today, and uh, Jesus Christ is the shepherd. God is the shepherd, but he appoints under-shepherds, your pastors and your elders. Small group leaders who f facilitate discussions, our coaches. These are under-shepherds who also feed you. You think about pastors and preachers and authors who are on video, theologians that you can read, podcasts you can listen to, books that you can read. And feed yourself and find restoration for your soul. Take full advantage of the uncommon community that God has given to us. This is another way God restores us. It's through one another, speaking truth into each other's lives, encouraging one another, exhorting one another, teaching one another, praying for one another with one another. The serving teams that you're on, the small groups that you're a part of are so important in terms of restoring your soul. God's provided the church for us. It's an awesome thing. Think about worship and gathering on weekends and how much this is such a reorientation from a six-day span of time that sought to pull you away from Jesus. And we need this to be together, to sing these songs together, to encourage one another. In the midst of this hostile world that we live in, we need this reorientation. Jesus offers all of this to us, these green pastures, these still waters, because life is hard. Because we can be hard on each other at times. Because false teachers abound. Because we can so easily lose our way. Because there are enemies who make it their mission to harm us as the children of God. And in the midst of all of that, God has made it possible for us to say, I lack nothing. The Lord is our shepherd. I have everything I need. Well, secondly, you can also say this, I fear nothing. I fear nothing. God uh, provides for, or, or protects me. God protects me. We'll see now his leadership in the latter part of verse 3. He leads me. In paths of righteousness. 
God always leads us according to his own character. And if we were to pick one characteristic for God that we would say is preeminent above all others, we would say God is holy. God is holy. He is perfect in every way. He is righteous in all his ways. And he leads us in the paths of righteousness because he can't lead us down any other path. It's the only path he knows. To be consistent with his character, it's the only way he can lead us. And he does this, notice verse 3, for his name's sake. Because his reputation is on the line, because he is pictured to us as a faithful God, an all-powerful God, a covenant-making God, a covenant-keeping God. That's our God. And his reputation is on the line with regard to the health of the sheep, just like a a real shepherd and real sheep. You think about those sheep, if they're emaciated, if they're underfed, if they're diseased, if they're dirty, if they're wounded, if the number of sheep in the flock keeps going down because some are getting lost, that is a reflection 100% on the shepherd. If that's the condition of the flock, then I'm looking at the shepherd saying, you're not very good at your job. And the condition of God's people is a reflection on God himself. And God is consistent in every way and God is perfect in every way. And so God protects his people in every way. And he leads us in the paths of righteousness. He's not going to fail. His character demands that he keeps his word. And so if that's true, when we follow his ways and not our own, that will always lead to good things. When we follow his way and not our own, that will always lead to good things. But if you, for example, can I give you some examples? If you, for example, do dating, sex, and marriage your own way and not his way, that's going to lead to hurt. That's going to lead to loss. If you're a business person and you do business your own way and not his way, that leads to hurt and loss. If you do trials, I'm going through a difficult season, I'm going to do it my own way, I'm going to make it through this, I'm not going to rely on God, that only leads to hurt. Whatever you would do in this life, spend your money your own way. This is mine. I'll budget it. I'll spend it as I wish. That only leads to hurt. But let him lead you in paths of righteousness and you will find, let's just dip down into verse six for a second. We'll come back to it later. You will find goodness and mercy. That's what will follow you all the days of your life. Now that sounds like something you'd want. Goodness and mercy. Who doesn't want goodness and mercy? I want goodness and mercy. I want goodness and mercy every day. I I don't want there to be a moment of my day that isn't flowing with goodness and mercy that's coming from the Lord. Who wouldn't want that? And yet so many would choose not to have it. 
You can be the sheep that follows him in the paths of righteousness and gets the goodness and mercy of God, or you can be the sheep that eats the wrong plant, that falls off the cliff, that gets devoured by wolves or gets taken by thieves. Write this down. Don't be that sheep. Don't be that sheep. This got me thinking about Proverbs 14, 12. You know this verse? There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. It seems like this is the right way. It seems like this is my way. I thought this up. I think this is a good way. It's not. It leads to hurt. It leads to loss. And ultimately, it leads to death. Now, I get the objection at this point. You might say, but sometimes, you know, life is just so hard. The temptation's so strong that it's hard to choose the path of righteousness. It's hard to do it God's way. And the psalmist answers that. You see verse 4, he addresses that very issue. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, even when it's darkest, even when it's most difficult, even when it's bleakest, I'm going to follow him. In the darkest, most difficult days, I'm going to follow him. And I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now this phrase, much has been made of this phrase, the valley of the shadow of death. It's a beautiful, poetic phrase that captures our attention. It's part of what makes this psalm so awesome. Because it speaks to those times in our lives where we feel exactly this. In fact, in the original language, in the Hebrew, the word death is not even specifically mentioned per se. But this phrase, it, it gets us as close as we possibly can to understanding the depth of the darkness that the psalmist is speaking of. The phrase really refers to any and all difficult circumstances, one of which could be death, and for all of us eventually it will be death. A more literal phrasing would be this, and if you have an English Standard Version, there's actually a footnote to this at the bottom of the page, but this is literally the valley of deepest darkness. The valley of deepest darkness. This is a scary place because of that darkness and the pitfalls and the dangers and the threats that are in this particular place, but it's all-encompassing. It's not just about facing death. It's any deep, dark trial that you would go through. For sheep, it was things like robbers and wild animals and loose rocks and unstable footing and dangerous cliffs and, and being separated from the flock and lost and fast-moving water. These are the dangers that a real sheep would face. But this is an image for us of the hardest thing that God has chosen for you to go through. And some of you in this room, you've already been through that valley. For some of you, it's coming. I mean, this is you face to face with your own mortality. This is you facing a situation so desperate that there seems to be no way out of it. 
Something that changes everything in your life. Before this event, before I went through the valley, my life was like this. And then I went through it, and my life is like this. And everything has changed. Everything has been affected by this thing that happened to me. And life will never be the same again. This is you saying, in the midst of it, I, I can't go on. I'm so alone. I'm so afraid. What am I going to do now? And more than a few of you in this room have spoken those very phrases in the, in the midst of the valley of deepest darkness. Most of us have been there at some point and no one will avoid it completely. Some crushing circumstance that will push you into this valley. And yet it's possible because of Christ in us, it's possible in the midst of that very dark and desperate place to say, I fear nothing. It's interesting, in fact, that at this point in the psalm, and Pastor Rick, who preached an amazing message last weekend on Psalm 139, if you missed that, uh, check that out online. But in preaching Psalm 139 about the presence of God, he took us for a few moments into Psalm 23. And it was at this point in the psalm that he pointed out that up until this point in the psalm, we've been talking about God and all of the pronouns have been third person speaking about God. He leads me. He restores me. He makes me. It's all he. We're talking about God. But at this point, now that we're in the valley of deepest darkness, we don't have the luxury of just talking about God as if he's some distant deity, as if, as if we can just be dispassionate about him. In the valley of deepest darkness, I can't afford that. I need a God who's present and one who I can speak to. And at this very moment in the psalm, notice, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. He switches to the second person. He talks directly to God. In this very moment, it's awesome that we can speak to God in this way in the most difficult and darkest periods of our lives to be able to speak directly and personally and intimately to God. In John 10, of course, we have this illustration of sheep and shepherd again. Jesus says he's the good shepherd. And in verse 27 of John 10, he says, my sheep know my voice. My sheep know my voice and they follow me. And we're listening for God and he's listening to us. This ability to speak to God in such an intimate and personal way because he's right there with us. This is the thing that makes you and I different than the people who live next door to us who go through the very same thing. It's, it's the thing that makes us different than our co-workers and our unsaved family members. 
that when we go through the valley of deepest darkness, we have someone to talk to who can do something about it and who's walking through it with us. This is the thing, by the way, Christian, that makes you different than the Muslim and the Hindu and for sure the atheist. You have a personal God who loves you and who's walking through this valley with you every step of the way. And the reason we can have such confidence in him, the reason why we can say, I fear nothing, is because Jesus has already been through the valley ahead of us. He's already walked through the valley of deepest darkness. Hebrews 4.15, the preacher says this, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. Jesus walked the same road. He went down the same path. He made it to the other side of the valley without losing it, without being afraid. When Jesus was hungry in the wilderness and facing the temptation to bow down and worship Satan, when Jesus prayed in the garden, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. When Jesus cried out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was walking through the valley of deepest darkness. And he made it to the other side. And so he knows the way. He knows how to get through it. And that's why we, we shouldn't fear because we can trust him. He, he already knows the path out of it. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. He knows what we need as we go through it. He's going to provide that. He's going to protect us from every pitfall along the way so that we can say with confidence we fear nothing. We have his rod. We have his staff comforting us. We can pray the fact that you are with me, God, and you are prepared to protect me and feed me and lead me and comfort me in the midst of all of this. God, that's enough for me. That's enough. I'm confident in the face of every dark valley that I'm compelled to travel because I lack nothing, I fear nothing, and finally, look at this, I despair over nothing. God promises me. There's a lot of different examples I could give of the despair that's gripping our world today. I grabbed just this one, a U.S. study that was reported in Time magazine in November 2016. They said a significant increase in the percentage of young people aged 12 to 20 who have reported having a major depressive episode. Symptoms of this include low self-esteem, loss of interest in normally enjoying enjoyable activities, the problems with sleep, energy, and concentration. It's basically robbing teenagers of their teen years. The article goes on to say that this is not a surprise to school counselors and clinicians who have seen a rise in depression, anxiety, and related incidents of self-harm firsthand. 
The study goes on to say, and this is hard, perhaps the most common risk for depression is being female. According to the Department of Health and Human Services, rates of depression among girls aged 12 to 15, 12 to 17, I'm sorry, in 2015, were more than double that of boys. All of that would be substantiated by our partners at The Cove and Counselor Selena Frechette, who deals with teens on a regular basis. We know this to be true. Those of you who are educators, and maybe some of you who are parents who have dealt with this in your own home, you know the despair that's gripping teenagers. That's just one example. I think the despair is all over our society, all over our culture. The kind of despair that we're talking about here is really, there are trends, but it really is no respecter of persons, no respecter of gender or of age or of life circumstance. You can be rich or poor and be so gripped by despair and hopelessness. So much despair, depression, despair, and defeat are your enemies. And God has made some promises to you that mean that you should despair over nothing. Not that you're not still going to go through the valley, not that it's not going to still be a challenge or a struggle, but that God will be with you in it. And you should not despair because he is with you. I said that verse, four, verse 5, the metaphor changes from that of a shepherd to that of a host. And notice verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. So I get this meal that's set out in front of me. I'm going to eat it, not take a picture of it. This meal is set before me and the enemies are around me and they don't get to sit at the table. God set out the meal for me. They can stand by and watch. In fact, I love the way Charles Spurgeon said this. There's a fight going on and there are enemies all around. You do not generally have tables set in the hour of battle, but God keeps his people so calm amid the bewildering cry, so confident of victory, that even in the presence of their enemies, a table is spread with all the state of a royal banquet. There's a cloth on the table. There are ornaments on it. And there are all the accompaniments of a feast. The enemies may look on if they like. They may grin. They may wish they could devour. But they cannot sit down at the table. And they cannot prevent me from sitting down at it. Let them blow their trumpets. Let them fire their guns. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. It is the very pinnacle of security and repose. Sit down and eat. And whatever would keep you from eating, please understand, it's not of God. If you have something in your life that is not of God, it is an enemy. And it's keeping you from the good things that God wants to give you. If it hurts you, if it hinders God's work, dump it, move on. Sit at the table and feast on what God has for you. Enjoy the meal. Well, there's more to this. 
Notice uh, verse 5 continues, not only do you get this feast, but the psalmist says, you anoint my head with oil. This is a courtesy offered to guests to uh, freshen themselves up before the meal. I know what this is like uh, for me. Um, you know, I might go out and do the yard work. We have a good size yard, and lately it's been pretty humid, and um, I can go out there, and, and I get pretty sweaty, pretty awful. You wouldn't want to be around me kind of uh, stinky. And maybe if, if I do that yard work leading right up into a meal time, and Cheryl has now the food is ready and we're going to sit down, but I would every time want to clean up, have a shower before I go and sit and enjoy the meal because I'm not going to enjoy the meal as well if I'm not, you know, cleaned up. And certainly everyone else at the table isn't going to enjoy it as well either. Well, that's exactly what's going on here. The, the oil is a, a courtesy offered to guests to refresh themselves, to bring healing as they sit down at this meal. God is blessing so lavish is the feast. Notice verse 5 continues, my cup overflows. Cheryl and I have an awesome marriage. I want to say that right up front. And I also need to say that this illustration is Cheryl approved. <laughs> We've been married for 27 years and you would think that after 27 years you would have some things worked out but we still have our issues. And one of them is the amount of tea that she puts into the cup. So I choose a cup based on the amount of tea I would like to consume. And for me, I want that cup filled as high as I possibly can fill it so I can drink all of the tea that the cup will hold. And my wife, 27 years in, still does not understand this. I'm hoping that by this public shaming, something will change in our marriage. <laughs> Probably, probably not, probably not. But she will pour the tea, inevitably. She will pour the tea, and it will be two-thirds of a cup. And all I really want for my wife is that she would obey the scriptures. My cup <laughs> overflows. We may have to go out for dinner tonight. God fills the cup and keeps filling the cup and it overflows. He's so lavish and generous toward us, and why wouldn't we take advantage of this? And because he's so lavish in this, I despair over nothing. He's giving me everything I need. He's promised some things to, him, to me, and I know he's gonna come through. And so I'm filled with hope. Well, verse 6 forms the conclusion to the entire psalm. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. If all of this is true, for sure I'm getting good things. No matter where I'm walking, no matter what I'm going through. And I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And at the end of the day, this is what the psalmist wants. This is what you and I should want. It's a closer walk with God. It's being with him. It's seeing him face to face. That's what we're aiming toward. That's the forever part. But the psalmist is also thinking in the immediate. Is he thinking about the tabernacle or the temple or that place where he meets with God that's so special to him? 
Whatever it is the psalmist wants to get there and stay there forever, it's the place where you and I find the presence of the Lord so strong. It's a place of deep communion and relationship with the Lord that remains no matter what's happening around you. It's not affected by circumstances. Remember, the banquet is in the presence of your enemies. God's, God's presence is in the midst of the valley. It doesn't matter if it's a brown, bright mountaintop or the darkest valley. It doesn't matter if it's the green pastures or the barren desert, as long as God is there. I will despair over nothing. I'm so confident in him. One of our harvest family members recently went through the valley of deepest darkness. And she exemplified in so many amazing ways exactly what we're talking about here in Psalm 23. And I just really felt it would be important for you. This story is so fresh. It's really just a couple of weeks old. And... Um, I wanted you to hear her story. So if you turn your attention to the screen, uh, this is Patty LaRose. My name is Patty LaRose, and I've been at Harvest for about four and a half years. Uh, I serve on the worship team. I play bass. And this past year, I've been able to serve with the uh, youth ministry as well with the grade nine girls. So I work with a ministry in Bradford, Ontario, called Cross Trainers Canada. And we run a youth center in Bradford. We have a free clothing room. Um, some women's programs like women's Bible studies and in the summer we travel and do kids camps um, Jody who works with me um, does the messages and then we do some of the program and the girls council summer 2017 we had five camps um, planned so we left on June 3rd um, and then had two nights of camping before we um, were heading to the first place where we would have gone hiking so we were in Colorado one night, and then the next day we were in Utah, um, outside of Arches National Park. Um, so it's a little town called Moab, Utah, in the middle of the desert. And uh, when we got there, we were setting up camp, and I didn't feel really great. I thought maybe I was just dehydrated. Thing thought I just needed to drink more. Maybe I needed to eat something. So I was doing my Bible study in the morning, trying to kind of feel, get myself to calm down and feel better. And uh, nothing was working. And eventually got progressively worse. Finally, uh, Jody and one of our interns actually um, suggested they're like, I think we should go into a clinic or something. Um, so we actually went into the ER, was about 10 minutes from our campsite, a little tiny hospital. They got me in and started to do my vitals. And when they were doing my blood pressure, it was really low. Um, and so they did it a number of times and something happened in that because every time they made me move, I felt terrible. They rushed me into another room, hooked me up to a defibrillator and uh, doctor came in and gave me a medication to stop my heart and restart it, um, which was also a horrible experience. Um, and that was supposed to slow my heart down, and it did slow it down a little bit, um, but it immediately jumped back um, into this crazy rhythm. So my heart was beating between 70 beats a minute and 230 beats in about a second or two it would change. And what they determined was that I was, my heart was in um, ventricular tachycardia. Um, and because it wasn't responding to the medication, it meant it was in the lower part of my heart, uh, which meant it can cause sudden death if one of the um, heartbeats happens to land where you're supposed to have a normal beat, uh, can just stop your heart. And the doctor determined that I needed to uh, be air-vacked um, to Salt Lake City, where they had a cardiologist and a cardiac unit, um, and I needed surgery immediately. So I got my first helicopter ride, and <laughs> 
I just remember praying and I said to the Lord, I'm like, so either I'm coming home to see you, I'm like, or you're gonna fix this and you have more for me to do. I'm like, and it's, it's your pick, you know, and I'm okay with whatever, whatever you decide. So Thursday afternoon I went in for the surgery, same thing, the doctor who was the surgeon for this was the number one in the States. He came in and was just like, it's gonna be no problem, 100%, whatever, and went into the surgery and an hour and a half later I came out and they said it was perfect, 100%, I should never have another problem the rest of my life. I can go to camp next week. It was remarkable in terms of the peace. Um, yeah, was never stressed about what was gonna happen. And it was just a total um, confidence in him as he was direct, he literally directed every single step um, for this whole journey. And it was never, uh, oh no, what are we gonna do? It was okay, I guess this is what we have to do now. And you know, and, and just trusting the Lord in that. and to the point that after the fact, so um, by the end of the whole thing, I could look back at it and see now how the Lord um, took something that seemed so terrible at the time and made it into something so incredible. He took care of it by taking me to the desert, to one place where he knew I was gonna get the exact care that I needed with the exact doctor that I needed to have it taken care of in a time frame where I could just continue with what he had planned for me and the camps that he had me to serve at for the summer, um, that it went from this dark, so to speak, picture to this perfect picture, which um, was what made me think of Psalm 23, the idea of walking through the valley of the shadow, but he takes you into green pastures and sets your table for you. Like, that's just what I felt like. He took me through something I didn't even know I needed that was a bad situation and made it so incredibly good for the future. Um, you know, that was the part that was just, it, you know, we just walked with the Lord in, in every step of the way and, and uh, it was just cool to watch him work it out, so. Did you hear what Patty said? Some pretty astounding things. Either I'm coming home to see you or you're going to fix this and have more for me to do. It's your pick and I'm okay with whatever you decide. Someone who's despairing doesn't say that. In fact, she went on to say, I was never stressed about what was going to happen and it was just a total confidence in him as he was literally directing every single step for this whole journey. It was never, oh no, what are we going to do? It was okay, I guess this is what we have to do now. And trusting the Lord in that to the point that after the fact I could look back at it and see now how the Lord took something that seemed so terrible at the time and made it into something so incredible. But that's on the other side of the valley. Patty was confident in the face of the dark valley that she was compelled to travel through because she lacked nothing, she feared nothing, and she despaired over nothing. Is that you? Do you have that same confidence in Jesus Christ and in his plan for you? Cry out to him out of the depths of your soul for that very thing, the confidence to trust him no matter what. Amen.